This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. Mm, good morning. It's Monday morning right here on MPB Think Radio, and this is Deep South Dining. It's Malcolm White with Carol Palmer. Good morning, Carol. Sugar, sugar, honey, uh-huh. honey. <laughs> You're my candy girl. <laughs> and you got me wanting you. Ah, Whoa, yes. he dug deep for that. Oh, DJ Java. <laughs> At it again. How's it going, Carol? I see we weren't here last week. No, we weren't. We Where were somewhere were we? other than here. <laughs> it was Labor Day. Labor Day. We were not laboring. Uh, we were not. Well, speak for yourself. You were cleaning or building. Doing something in the yard or with the grandkids. Who knows? Who knows? It's a a good good holiday, but uh, here we are back live and in person on Monday morning. And we appreciate everyone who dials in and communicates that to us. I don't know about you, but as I go through my daily life, I am blessed that many people stop me and tell me that they enjoy listening to us on Monday mornings. And I said, well, you know, it's just Carol and I visiting. You know, it's getting to spend an hour with your best friend. It's like at some point, you know, you miss seeing your friends. It's hard to do. And it, it is. It's like a, a a Monday morning meeting. Yeah. It's like coffee with Carol. Yeah. Anyway. I was trying to think munchies with Malcolm. <laughs> Mocha with Malcolm. Mocha. Mocha Java with Malcolm. Java. Oh, mo- yeah. You got it yeah, all. Yeah. Got it know. all. Got it all. But what about cooking in your kitchen this well, week? Well, let's see. You know, we ate out Saturday night at Elvie's, which was a treat for us. We don't go out to eat as much as we used to. Uh, my wife's very busy opening her new school, the Canopy School, and last week was their first week. I'm extraordinarily proud of her and of the Canopy organization and for this new endeavor, uh, the, this K-12 school for kids with learning differences and so she's been very busy with that so I've like been, a good husband you took her out to dinner we went out to dinner we went to Elvie's and we had a marvelous dinner you know we live so close to Elvie's we literally walked and after we had our dinner at Elvie's and Kara had a, a fish I think it was um I think it was snapper and I, I always mispronounce this in papillette in the bag yeah, papillote papillote and it was really, really good. Tomato sauce, um, fresh vegetables in the bag. Uh, you know, typically when I get this dish, it's been in New Orleans, and it's almost always pompano. Ah. But this was snapper. And instead of a cream sauce, which I recall is traditionally the way I see it in New Orleans, this had a tomato-based sauce, and it was super delicious. That sounds delicious. And, I mean, I'm not a cook like Elvie's, but that's something I do a lot at home, and it's so easy to do. All you have to do is literally take a piece of parchment paper, put your fish 
and I use pretty much any kind of fish, but for me, mostly a white fish. Mm-hmm. Season it. Sole, flounder. Yeah, season it. Case, but, you know, a pretty a small piece, like a deck of cards mm-hmm. size. And put a pat of butter on it and a tablespoon of wine. That's tricky when you have to add the wine at, at the last because you fold over the parchment paper and you know, get a pair of scissors and then, mm-hmm. you know, cut the, cut it into kind of a circle right. or half circle at that mm-hmm. point. And then you fold up the edges. And when you have about two inches left, you can pour in a couple of tablespoons of wine and then seal it up. And, you know, it's so wonderful because you're cooking without any kind of fat. It's, and it's, it's so own flavorful. vapor cooks itself. Yes. And just throwing one piece of an herb yeah. You know, on there, it's it's just delicious. So I, I highly recommend doing fish in parchment paper or on papillote. On papillote, as the French like to say. And I had uh, an appetizer of raw oysters. The little oysters they now farm raise in Biloxi, ah. called French something. I, I yes, we had them. Fr- it, we, is it Frenchman oysters? The no, French Frenchman oysters. French something. I'm sorry, listeners. Uh, didn't do my homework, but the oysters were delicious and salty and and, and nice. Uh, and then I had a homemade pasta dish uh, with grilled shrimp on it, and that was really good. And then we walked next door to a new place in downtown Belhaven called Mayday, and it's an ice cream shop, and all the ice creams are homemade. And I got a mint chocolate chip, <clears throat> Carol, that had mint leaves ground up in it. No, it's so good. And they make their own waffle cones while you wait. And the name again? Mayday. 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 I'm heading over over there. It's it's a new ice cream shop right across the street from Fertile Ground, which is the new brewery. And all of this is going on in uh, the old Baptist Hospital property uh, in Belhaven. And it's called Belhaven business district i believe it surely has a more hip name than that but it's it's got it got it going on it's really cool well i I wanted to tell you those oysters i believe are frenchmen they're frenchmen oysters by the frenchman oyster company okay grow them uh in buckets down on the coast so we want to give them plenty of credit absolutely they were they were fine now let us not uh get too far into this show without acknowledging uh, what we've been through here uh, in, the, in the last few months. Our water crisis uh, has completely and totally impacted our restaurant community, and it's been difficult. And, uh, you know, we, we now have pressure restored. We will not go into the politics of all of this, but we do have pressure, but we still have a boil water, do not drink notice. So restaurants are still having to bring in water, to cook with, bring in ice, bring in bottled water, bring in canned Cokes and soft drinks. Uh, so anyway, it, it's, it's a real burden. Uh, last week, the Visit Jackson Tourism Com- uh, Organization announced um, a grant program for restaurants who have suffered so much financially through this. Um, and most people that I talk to, their business is off between 
you know, 25 and 40 percent. So it's it's been devastating. Oh, in a restaurant, you can't. I mean, you, you're dealing with such small percentages anyway for profit. That is just devastating. Four percent when everything works well. Yes. It's not a great return. But anyway, it's been a difficult time. We want to acknowledge that our restaurant community has suffered greatly and that we are empathetic of that. We ask that people support local restaurants. Believe me, they are they are serving safe water. They're very conscientious of, of all of this, and uh, any help that they can receive would, would be greatly appreciated. I heard that our Lieutenant Governor Delbert Hoseman actually went on a restaurant tour in Jackson. I saw that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's Just to one, show support. Yeah, you know, to show support. Yeah. That's good. We appreciate Delbert Hoseman uh, taking the, making the effort. And so, unlike up. our normal message, about cooking at home and cooking for your family. This week, we encourage all of our listeners who are in the Jackson area to eat out in the city. Correct. Thankfully, this is not a statewide or a a problem throughout our listenership, but uh, it is a problem in our hometown of Jackson, Mississippi, and we appreciate uh, all of those who are supporting us. I saw a great episode last night. Of True South, our great friend John T. Edge's program on ESPN. It was so good. He went to Kentucky to a little town and featured a a barbecue family, and it was really spot on. John T. does such a great job. And I know there's an episode coming up where he comes to Jackson. I don't know the details of that, but we hope to have him on when that happens. So the show's on ESPN. Does it run adjacent to a football game or in – is it linked to a certain football game that's going on in the area, or he's just tra- traveling through the SEC? You got me. I don't know. We'll ask John T. when we have him on. Good I idea. I don't know how that works, but I have really enjoyed this program. If you haven't seen it, Google it or search for it. True South uh, with John T. Edge uh, of Oxford, Mississippi, and the Center for – no, for the Southern Foodways Alliance organization. At the Center for the Study of Southern Culture. Correcto changeo. All right, so one of the tidbits that uh, I stumbled across this week uh, was using not peeling garlic if you're going to use a press. Just put the whole thing in there, nubs, skin, and all. What do you think about that? Well, I love it that you send me these things during the week. Right. Little reminders. Java gets them, too. He's probably annoyed. Like, how many of these are you going to send out this week, man? Yeah, well. It's, it is, I will say the number that you do send is astonishing. <laughs> <laughs> Malcolm is on the job for all of us. Well, Research I, I just don't pass people. up food stories when I see I know one. that. But uh, when I saw the headline, it said something about you don't have to peel garlic before you it. And you were like, yeah, And I was like, yippee. <laughs> Because I'm a smasher. Yeah. I take I'm a my, my garlic pod with the papery with the skin, skin on, it on it and, and I take a whack it with my eight inch chef's knife and that disperses the papery thin peel. Correct. But this article had a tip from the from America's Test Kitchen, which I mean we know what a great source they are, and it said that the garlic press is way underrated and not used nearly as much as it should be it's usually in the back of a drawer mm-hmm. instead of the front of the drawer can't ever find it when you need it you can't ever find it when you need it and um, they said that is a tool that must be used more because you can put your garlic pot in there smash and 
the product that comes out is even, it uniform. And the skin is gone. And the skin is gone. And, it, and because you're smashing the skin, it helps clean the garlic press. Now, as an old gourmet store owner, I will tell you that many of the new garlic presses are self-cleaning. Mm. So you actually turn the lever on the garlic press and there are little plastic things that push the used garlic out. Another highlight. Heard it here. Yeah, you heard it you heard it here on Deep South Dining. Another highlight of this past week for us, Carol, was a small jar of pear preserves that you gifted to us. Those things are outrageous. You gave us two jars. We've blown through one and we're saving the other one almost like an investment. Those well, things are good. I hope to hope to reinvest you this fall. Last year Leanne Galt came out to go away lodge where John and I live, and we made pear preserves all weekend. And I have a big box of pears from our friend Sherry Lucas, who brought them all the way from Summit, Mississippi, and I'm ready to dig into those this week. Well, kudos on the preserving. Well, and thank we'll, you. we'll have April McGregor on later. Well, I was we can... using my inner April. It yeah. Actually, uh, April McGregor was the one that inspired me to take on the task of pear preserves and, and fig preserves. She and... was on one of our early shows, and I said, hey, you know, I can do that. And thus, what goes around becomes preserved. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Another tidbit, probably the last before the break, will be how to thicken chili. Another little nugget I picked up on. Well, you know, I was telling you that I think this should be our new political position because there's too many politics of negativity. And our, our mission is to have no watery chili. No thin chili. No thin chili. If we stand for anything. We stand exactly for thick chili. Yes. And to thicken your chili so you don't make this faux pas, uh, this article Malcolm sent uh, mentioned masa harina, mm-hmm. which is the powdered form of masa, which is corn flour. You know, a Mexican dried and powdered form of corn. Mm-hmm. Product. And, Corn, corn product. <laughs> Let me finish and, that sentence okay. for you. And uh, this interested what me friends because are for? I thought I would just take a couple of spoons and dump some masa into my chili to mm. thicken it. But no, no, you need to make a slurry like Correct. you do with cornstarch. You put equal amounts of masa and water. Slurry down yep, to a to stone, stone cold picnic. So any, anyway, you've got your two tablespoons of masa, your two tablespoons of water. Mm-hmm. Add it to your chili and presto changeo. Excellent advice. And, and masa is available on our grocery store shelves now, either in the flour section or the uh, section with Hispanic foods. And speaking of corn, there was a fabulous post on cooking and coping this past week about cooking Mexican-style corn. This was Barbara Tuccio, Tuccio from Jackson. And uh, I've, I've already been calling around getting her phone number because we're going to have to call her next week. But she did a Mexican corn, and it had Parmesan pepper, comeback sauce, and basil. I know. And roasted it. I know. Comeback sauce I and know. basil. 
Who knew? Barbara knew. But she paired it with garlic burst tomatoes. Mm. So you have these two big Mm. flavors, the tomatoes and the corn, and then just a very simple piece of salmon. So it sounded like the perfect dinner. Well, I'm hungry now. I hope you are as well. All right. You want to take these callers or go to April 1st? What do you want to do, Java? You're the man. Uh, Let's talk to, who's that, Chris in Jackson. Chris. What's going on, Chris? I just was uh, wanted to let y'all know that the oysters you're talking about at uh, Elvie's is from a company called the French Hermit Oyster. Company. Ah. ah, you're so correct. Thank you, Chris. They're farming them down on Deer Island. They're fantastic, and they need all the clout they can get. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. The, the, the French Hermit. The, I knew there was a word missing from, from my description, but my goodness, they were good. And thank you so much. Have you had them? I'm sure you have. Absolutely. They're fantastic. <clears throat> They're great. Chris, where can people buy them uh, on the Gulf Coast retail? There's, um, I, I think um, there's a seafood supply down there that, that has them from time to time. Uh, but I think they mostly stick to the restaurants. Okay. All right. Well, thanks a lot for listening, Chris, and for calling and straightening us out on the French hermit oysters being farm-raised in Biloxi, Mississippi, do you say off Deer Island? Yeah. Oh, yeah, right off yeah. Deer Island. Okay. All right. We've also got a caller from Tupelo, Mississippi, on the line. Mike, what's going on, my man? Good morning. Good morning. I'm calling about pear preserves. Um, I ate some last night and the other day. Um, my pear tree, once about every three years, comes through, and today, this year's a good year. Um, so, Carol, I wanted to ask you what recipe you used for your pear preser- preserves. And then uh, if you have any recipe suggestions or locations for pear relish, because I just made a, made a bunch of that and going to make some more today. Well, I will tell you where my recipe came from, and then I will advise you to stay on the air, and we will let April talk about pear relish. But I happened on YouTube to this cooking channel. It's these people in Arkansas, and they have a channel it's called Whippoorwill Holler, or Hollow. And it's this couple that just kind of share their life and their kitchen with people all over the world. And I sat down and watched Ma and Pa make uh, pear preserves, and I kind of just did it uh, just, just like they did. And I, you know, cut up my pears and then sprinkled them with the sugar i don't remember the ratio it's in most every pear recipe but let them sit overnight and you know really let the the juices come out and that was something that uh that april taught me but um let's ask her about that and and maybe we'll all be making pear relish as we should be as we should be let's make pear relish together so we'll be thinking about you this week, making those pairs. Okay. Okay, right. Mike. Thanks a lot. We'll be listening for April's advice. <clears throat> She'll be on shortly. We appreciate your listenership, and we appreciate your calling, as always. You know, it's not every woman who renders their own lard or cries over Kentucky Wonder Beans. April McGregor, however, dwells in a vital, dynamic realm of Southern food, past and present, and sees things differently than most. April's Kitchen is home to a deep love and respect for the food and people that nurtured her as a child in tiny Vardaman, Mississippi, 
But it is also an increasingly cosmopolitan political space that houses strong commitments to season, environment, producer, and community. April sees community as an end goal. In true community, one of interconnected, interdependent people, there are neighbors taking care of each other, whether that means something local and specific like bringing food when there's a death in the family, or something larger and more anonymous like taking care of the planet on each other's behalf and growing organic vegetables. On a much larger scale, April is recreating the sense of community she lost when she moved away from her small hometown and her entire family. She is creating a world in which she wants to live, and she is doing it through food and Carol, she is not alone. She is certainly not alone. Welcome, April McGregor. Thank you. Hello, friend. Hi. It's wonderful to be here with you all this morning. I have a new computer, and I'm um, struggling to turn my camera on. So, sorry Well, we see that. your little bunny face or whatever that is. Yeah. I'm smiling. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> but we will look forward to seeing you. Good. So what's up, April? Oh, um, I am just uh, enjoying the first, this will be the first full week of my son being back at school. So that is lovely and trying to catch up and remember how to, you know, how to, how to work every day and uh, all that sort of stuff. And um, the garden is still producing here. I uh, planted a ton of tomatoes this year, so I've been slowly um, putting up um, a few batches of tomatoes, at a, small batches of tomatoes <clears throat> at a time as they as they ripen. Um, so yeah, and looking forward to some fall weather. Yeah. Well, your season, you know, is so far behind us. It's it, it's so interesting to yeah. me to see what you're doing, and then. Um, our friend Leslie um, on the West Coast, who's on cooking and coping, they're talking about the first tomatoes coming in, the first right. fig mm-hmm. coming in. And, you know, we are sadly at the end of all of those good things. Yeah, yeah. Yes, our, our tomatoes, for example, are totally burned out. But, but we still have farmer markets and heirlooms yeah. and such that we can eat. Yeah. So how about those figs? Um. Oh, the figs, um, uh, as in the ones that I have, or yes. are we talking pears? No. Okay, yes. Well, let's so, let's talk about figs first. Okay. Yes. So I planted um, when I first moved to Philly. I um, I, uh, I I realized that a lot of people in my neighborhood here in Mount Airy, I'm in Northwest Philadelphia, um, had a lot of ha- a lot of people had fig trees, and I always thought that figs couldn't grow above like North Carolina, Virginia. That sort of was sort of the northernmost um, uh, range. But um, if you plant them, um, particular varieties that are a little more cold hardy, and you plant them close to your house, especially if you have a brick or stone house, um, they do quite well. So the first thing that I did when I when we moved in to this house is um, I planted two fig trees, actually. One that's in kind of the perfect spot and another one just because I couldn't help myself for buying two. Um, <laughs> that's in a pot, which I heard they would grow in. 
and um, the one that I planted right next to the house, southern with southern exposure, um, is just covered up with figs and uh, doing really great. And so I've been um, picking those as they ripen. They're still they have two figs have two seasons. One that's earlier. Their second bigger season is happening now. So I've been um, just taking them off as they ripen and putting them in sugar and I'm sort of holding them in the fridge and waiting to get a little bit of a bigger batch and then I'll make fig preserves. Mm. And April, you're a real fan of small batch preserving and you you talked to us about that on the radio, which really interested a lot of our our listeners and kind of gave us permission to do one saucepan full of preserves. So can you talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, so I predominantly make um, very small batches of stuff, especially if I'm if I'm preserving stuff that I grow myself because I'm just a little backyard gardener and I just don't have big batches of things coming in at one time. But I really love um, the small batch method because it's not so overwhelming and you can just fit it into your schedule. You don't have to, you know, the way that we think of like our grandmother's canning or like the you know when women in the community sometimes would come together and can or when people were canning for survival we think of you know just this you know hours and hours and hours of work and you know this kitchen's hot for days and it just seems a little overwhelming so I often you know when you know I'll just kind of either use stuff that's coming in from my own garden or maybe I went to the farmer's market and just got a little carried away with peaches and we don't eat them all um, before I start to worry that we're not going to get them all eaten. So I'll just take, you know, um, you know, five or six of the peaches and uh, peel them and cut them up and put them under a little bit of sugar. And when they get nice and juicy, I'll, I make a lot of times what I just call skillet jam. So I'll just take my largest skillet. That's like a 12 inch skillet. Um, it's really great for making the type of jam that you don't add any pectin to because you have a really large surface area that allows for maximum evaporation. And that means that you can cook it pretty for pretty short periods and you get this thick jam that then you can just put directly in a jar It'll only make like a pint or um, maybe a pint and a half or something like that. And then you can just put it in your fridge and just eat it. You don't have to can it or anything. Or if you do that a couple times and you already have some, you can throw it in the freezer. Or you can go ahead and water bath it for um, like 10 minutes, which is um, the the regular, um, just like you would do a larger batch when you um, might water bath something. So uh, I know you were listening when Mike called about the pears, Mike from Tupelo. Uh, yes. Were you able to glean what his question was and offer any advice on that? Um, well, he asked for a pear relish recipe, um, which um, I, I, I don't have one. I don't have the relish recipe myself, although um, – I know that there's one, I always send people to the National Center for Food Preservation. Um, I um, was able to get my master preserver um, designation from Penn State here recently. And we always um, say that the National Center for Food Preservation um, 
and um, also the USDA are the best sources for recipes because they are current um, with scientific standards and the best methods for preserving food safety safely. And um, the great thing about the National Center for Food Preservation is that it also has an amazing free um, website um, with all of this information. So you don't even have to buy any books or anything to get it. Um, I also know and have used um, a great pear relish recipe that is in The Gift of Southern Cooking by Edna Lewis and Scott Peacock. Um, that one is really nice. So I would recommend that one as well. Um, and as far as making pear preserves, I always just cut up my fruit and then use um, about 60% by weight of um, sugar. Um, so if I have, um, you know, if I have five pounds of figs, then I would use about three pounds of sugar, something like that. Um, once I have it cut up, it's really not an exact science. Um, it, it's, um, you know, it is um, flexible. One of the things that I do is I just cut up the fruit, cut up the, the um, pears, have them in a bowl, kind of cover them with sugar let those sit till they get nice and juicy and then i will um once they are really juicy i usually do it overnight and let them sit and then when i cook them preserves pear and fig you want to cook slow whereas like something like jam you cook high and fast so i cook them just like a bare simmer until they're translucent translucent or clear you don't want to let them get too dark because they will darken a little bit further in once you um jar them um and then if at you know if, if to me that they don't look syrupy enough if the syrup's not thick enough you can either you can also turn it off heat pull it off and then stir in a little bit more sugar if you have if it looks too juicy to thicken it up a little bit more make sure you have you know lemon juice lemon slices that sort of stuff in there as well to both for flavor and also it helps to thicken um, your syrup and um, it helps to make it safe for canning, um, meaning it helps to lower the pH, make it more acidic as well. Mm. Boy, that's a great tip because I know people are kind of lemon or no lemon in right. fig preserves. And I did not realize that they had a scientific um, reason to be in there as well as just for flavor. And color yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, it makes for a beautiful presentation. Yes. I love, I mean, I love the lemon in there. The I, fig, and fig preserves definitely, um, the figs are considered low acid. They really need the lemon for, um, for if you're canning them for food safety reasons. But um, it also, they don't taste balanced to me unless they have that lemon in there because they don't have much acidity. And once you're adding more sugar, you need that acid for flavor <coughs> balance as well. Well, back to our pear preserves, do you ever use like ginger or cinnamon or any kind of flavoring with your pears? I do use ginger. Um, some people use cinnamon. I don't like cinnamon in there um, so much because for one, I mean, even if you use the stick cinnamon, it gives it a darker color. And I really just like that golden honey color that you get um it also <laughs> my mom and um you know always had that as a gauge of like if 
who may, you know, the sort of blue ribbon <laughs> winning hair preserves. It's like, oh, those are too dark. You know, mm. she would always say about, <laughs> about other, other people's hair preserves or even her own. She would say, oh, I made them too dark. Like I cooked them too long, that sort of thing. So because I use color as a gauge too, I really like to, um, you know, the cinnamon kind of throws that off where I can't really <clears throat> gauge the color as well. Um, but also I, in my mind, um, I mean, pear preserves and fig, but pear preserves are the preserves without fail that my parents made that we just always had because we have a big pear, a very big and productive pear tree. Um, and that one is probably my, you know, the, my most nostalgia inducing preserve. And I just don't carry <laughs> it very much from, I do add a little ginger. Ginger feels like subtle enough that doesn't change it that much and it just works super well with um pears how do you use ginger in the pear preserves so a couple of different ways one if you don't want um to eat the some people don't like extra solids in their preserves you know um so i you can grate the ginger and just squeeze the juice into them to give it a little bit of flavor or you can slice it really thin, um, julienne it, and add a little bit of it to your preserves. Excellent. Well, I, I must say I love the term skillet jam. I wasn't I familiar with that, so thank you so much for that culinary nugget. Okay, April, Malcolm and I have been doing a thing. Well, it's another one of Malcolm's cooking things he finds and sends Java all week. But we are doing... <laughs> 40-something weeks of cooking terms, and we just are on the bees. And, Malcolm, mm -hmm. your cooking term today relates to April. It is. It's Blanche. and mm. But you have the description. I do? I gave it to you. So we thought it was perfect timing to talk about blanching with April on the phone. But we can't find our description because... We've been handing off lots of paper here. How would you describe blanching, April? Well, blanching is a quick dip in boiling water. I, it's um, not always salted. If it's vegetables, I have it salted. If it's fruit, I don't have it salted. Or, you know, depends on your the, what you're using it for. A lot of people will blanch tomatoes and then into the boiling water for a few minutes and then put them into cold water, and it helps the um, peels to um to slip off easily if you're going to freeze peas or beans or something like that a quick dip in blanch in a, a quick blanch in boiling water um helps to um stop the enzymes from um uh, deteriorating the outside of the vegetables and it helps them to freeze nicer so usually in preserving food uh, most uh, freezer recipes say for you to blanch it quickly first. Okay, let's talk about blanching quickly because when you read recipes, sometimes you know, they have you blanching peas. It says like blanch for five minutes. Yeah. It seems like they would be mm. totally cooked. I mean, you bring your water to a boil and then just drop them in there for a couple of minutes, 30 seconds. I mean, there is, I think, a... Um, a range of sort of acceptable um, methods to use for blanching. I um, I would do what um, I would probably do what the National Center for Food Preservation says. Um, I don't think it has to be very long because mainly you are just um, the goal is really just to stop that enzyme from um, 
kind of deteriorating the outside of the vegetable. But um, th sometimes people use blanching as like a par cooking method. Whereas like for peas, if you're gonna be cooking them to serve, then maybe they're saying, well, just cook them a little bit at the beginning because then it'll make your cooking time later shorter. That's possible why they might be using a longer time. The other thing is, are they saying from the moment of boiling? Because usually what I do for like peas or green beans is I'll say like two minutes after it comes back to a boil and then you do it in small batches as well. Okay, so, so you do let it come back to a boil. So I time it from the time, most recipes that I have seen, the time that they give you for blanching is after it comes to a boil. But you're supposed to use very small batches at a time. Um, so you want, you know, so that you your your water is rapidly boiling. You drop in, you know, a what I call a spider full of green beans. You know, just that little. Um, there's another. That's a cooking tool term, I guess, not a cooking term itself. Um, but you, you know, a, a few handfuls of green beans um, or something like that. And then after it comes to a boil, like one to two minutes. One minute is fine for me if I'm going to be freezing them. <clears throat> if I'm going to just be um, eating them, like then I'll, you know, plunge it in ice water um, after about two minutes because I like them to be slightly softer if they're for eating. That's great. Mm, terrific. Now, <clears throat> April, tell us what's going on uh, in your writing career. I know you had a chapter in uh, Edible North Carolina. Edible North Carolina, but you also recently wrote another article that got somehow published as a book is that correct so yes um i i wrote a bookazine what um that's sort of the publishing term for the a book in magazine form that is available in a lot of these um like checkout lines at the supermarket or anywhere from walmart to barnes and noble and that sort of thing um on canning and preserving over the pandemic hmm. and i did that for um a publishing house um, and um, on contract. And then it was bought to be made into a book by Simon and Schuster. And it is actually set to come out in September. I believe, what is the date? Um, I don't know if it had a date, but anyway, uh, like uh, towards the end of September, it should be out in book form um, by, um, from Simon and Schuster and it is called jam on they changed the title slightly from what it was before. It's called jam on the complete guide to canning and preserving by April McGregor published by Simon and Schuster. So it is already up and available for pre-order on um, Amazon and through the Simon and Schuster website and a bunch of other places. Well, your pal Mal has been following I have. He, I'm, he sent, I'm excited. He sent, <laughs> sent Java and me a, a, a link to order it too. So he's he's promoting as he goes. Yes, of There's course. There's a recipe in there for pear preserves. Ah. I will tell you. And one of the things that I actually really love to do to my pear preserves, though it is not necessary, is I actually add a little bit of honey in place of some of the sugar, um, just because honey often has a really interesting flavor and pear preserves remind me of honey anyway they kind of I, that's the color that i go for um they kind of have that um 
compli complexity of taste beyond what you expect from them. But I add a little bit of honey to mine. Hmm. That's cool. So what? talk a little bit about <clears throat> the uh, Edible North Carolina. I, did you write a chapter? Is that right? Yeah. Um, so I wrote an essay. Um, Marcy an Cohen essay. Ferris was the editor of the book. And she got people from different food communities um, to write essays. And I wrote an essay kind of about my um, experience of running Farmer's Daughter, my jamming and preserving business that I ran in um, Orange County, North Carolina, Carborough, started in Carborough, moved um, out into the county, Hillsboro, um, for part of it. Um, and so my essay was sort of um, in this chapter that had a, a, or kind of surrounded with a bunch of um, photos of vendors from the Carborough Farmer's Market, which is where I was, was sort of the heart of my business. It's where I started um, selling and I sold there all the way through um, the whole 11 years that I was in business. Great. So it's interesting to me that um, when we have you on, I'm always reminded that you, you speak of Mississippi where you came from. But you're also you have a huge presence, not only in your past, but even in your uh, contemporary times in North Carolina and now, uh, you know, in Philadelphia. So what an interesting triangle from Mississippi, North mm -hmm. Carolina, PA. Yeah, and I was very aware of that during the pandemic when I took a couple of your classes online and you know, it would show who was in the class and they were making you know, comments mm -hmm. and to see that we were in this big mis mishmash of people yes. from all over your various com communities. Um, Not unlike cooking and coping. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Marcy Ferris was actually here two weeks ago yep. for our book festival. And and moi got to introduce her. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and she yeah, just did a wonderful job. She was she uh, was the moderator for Michael Twitty. Oh, that's for his awesome. new book. And then she was a panelist with right. uh, with the Dish session Wish that Bot. you sponsored. Yeah, and boy, was that interesting. We got to get April McGregor here for the book. Well, festival. you know, we really do, but we've got to nab April McGregor and bring her to the studio because she's very. Mm elusive when she comes to Mississippi. I'd say we busy. see little we busy, see busy, little busy. pictures of her in, you know, Greenwood and Vardaman and all over. And we're gonna nab her next time. Well maybe um if my family ever quits growing, I have a, a castle <laughs> of nieces and nephews. So it takes a it yeah. takes a while for me to make all the rounds and, and also eat all the foods that I need to eat every time that I'm there. I yes, like. and I love it when you <laughs> photograph them, but it's it's just about sweet potato season, and, yeah, and that's what it your is. family farms. Yes, I saw my brother is looking for um, some extra help to help dig sweet potatoes, so they've started digging, and apparently there's a lot to do because they they need more help. <laughs> do they dig with... I'm sure with a some sort of uh, tractor and uh, agriculture. It's called a digger. It's as far as I know, it's called a digger. Okay. It's, it does. It um, it works like a conveyor belt where um, it digs up the sweet potatoes and throws them onto a belt, and then but the, and then it is um, a lot of um, people are on 
all sides of the belt. And I think right there in the fields, they start sorting where they'll throw oh. the, you know, the largest ones um, into jumbos. I think some possibly will fall down or some of the sorting they do once they get it back to the packing shed, but right in the field, they start, um, you know, there's many, many human hands involved in sweet potatoes. They're much more fragile than russet potatoes and it, it requires um they they cannot be solely um machine dug they're too delicate for I guess, that i guess the russets are sort of like softballs you can just sort of knock them around and they're fine <laughs> they, but not yeah, the they, delicate sweet potato um yeah and it's the skin you know the skin on the russet has that kind of um kind of grainy uh, scaly almost yeah, yeah exactly yeah. quality and they um they can handle more roughness r- more rough handling than um than the sweet potato can the skin gets so easily scraped um up and bruised so they have to be handled and- gently Every time you come on the show, I think it's important that you tell the listeners the perfect baked sweet potato um, yes. Um, so um, the easiest w- method that I use is I line a baking sheet with um, parchment or foil, and then I fill it up with sweet potatoes, um, and I use a fork or um, a sharp end knife to put a couple of little pricks into the sweet potatoes. And then um, I usually rub them with a little bit of um, either a neutral oil or you could use bacon fat and put a little salt on them. And then I put them into the oven um, when it's still cold and turn it to 350. And at that point, I will roast them. It usually takes about an hour and a half um, at least, depending on the age and the size of your sweet potatoes. But you want them to be completely soft. No give whatsoever to them. Now, if your sweet potatoes are on the older side and they are drier, it may be better if you were to cover them and put a tiny bit, uh, a few tablespoons of water into your pan. Because sometimes when sweet potatoes get on the older side, they just won't, they don't have enough moisture in them and they don't soften up as well. Um, But that's Mm. really if you're, you know, in September using last season sweet potatoes. Now, let's talk about the very controversial topic of the sweet potato skin. Yes. Now, I have seen lots of people throw it away. And yes. oh my, but it seems to me that that's one of the most delicious parts of the potato. We do not shy away from controversy. <laughs> well, I certainly leave the skin on if I'm making um, like sweet potato wedges or, um, you know, uh, cooking sweet potatoes that way. Um, Sometimes if I'm making a lot of like sweet potato puree where I need it for pies or any type of baking, I will actually take a lot of the sweet potatoes and just before and just kind of slice the skins off with a little bit of the sweet potato left on there and make actual sweet potato skins, you Mm -hmm. know, with all the toppings and stuff. They make great snacks for football games in the fall and that type of thing. Um, so, you know, I definitely recommend eating the skin. Um, I'm not going to put it in my 
I'm not one of those people who puts it in my mashed sweet potatoes, whether they're savory or sweet. Right. So I get rid of it in those those, I, those instances. I like a, a smooth puree, but I definitely eat it on a roasted, and you know, and I love it on like hmm. sweet potato um, fries or sweet potato um, wedges, that type of thing. This is one of my favorite dishes growing up. My grandmother Stuart made this. She would make baked sweet potatoes for Sunday dinner. And then the leftovers were put whole sweet potatoes baked, were put in the refrigerator. And then the next day she would cut them in ovals Mm -hmm. about half an inch thick Mm -hmm. and then heat up butter in a skillet and brown those those, uh, potato ovals on both sides until they were almost caramelized. Mm -hmm. And those skins that would sort of detach, but they would be part of it. And so you get that sweet, crunchy, Mm -hmm. buttery, and then those skins had their own sort of unique flavor. I don't know how to describe them, but what a dish that was. That, yeah. Um, Anytime you get a chance to um, cook a sweet potato more than once, it, it just, (laughs) um, it's incredible. Um, it really, the, the, the extended cooking time really adds to the sweetness and the smooth texture and the caramelization that happens with the um, sweet potato. I love that method. And that is, I didn't finish when I said earlier, fill up as many sweet potatoes as you can on a tray for that exact reason. That <laughs> the only thing that stops us, you know, some people microwave a sweet potato and that's fine. That works if that works for you, but you don't get the same um, texture or sweetness when you do that. So I always tend to just keep some already baked whole, like you're saying, in a bag in the refrigerator or in the freezer where I'll just pull them off and either cut them into slices or chunks and roast or fry or do anything, you know, hash. What a um, great tip. Like I, I had no, no idea. And I love that uh, liquid that oozes out of a potato when it's refrigerated and it's um it, it's almost like another substance yeah and actually i that love sweet potato goo of, yeah the goo exactly it's caramel really yeah it's caramel um you know and uh i love them the sweet potatoes just like that cold straight from the mm-hmm. uh, like and, and mm-hmm. i heard also i have a friend who's korean and she said that's a really really common snack in korea is to have cold roasted sweet potatoes mm-hmm. um and it makes a great, I mean, even like breakfast, but, um, yeah, I love, I love them cold like that and cold sweet potato casserole the day after, um, Thanksgiving is always my favorite thing. That's what yeah. I eat for breakfast. Uh, if I'm not eating pie the day after Thanksgiving, <laughs> <laughs> I have an image of it in one of Faulkner's books. I think it was light in August, maybe the young girl carrying a sweet potato in her yeah. pocket to school. That's pretty deep South Carol. That's deep. My grandfather did that too. He said, "They said he said in the front apron pocket of your overalls you carried a hot sweet potato." Ah, out into in the, the field. field. Well, as always, April McGregor, thank you so much for joining us, and you have brightened our day and uh, rewarded us greatly for having you on as a guest. Thank you so much. Such a pleasure to see to to talk to you all here yeah. this morning. Excellent. We are funded by generous contributions from listeners like yourself. And we thank you. Our show is produced by Java Chapman. For my co-host, Carol Palmer, our special guest, April McGregor, 
I'm Malcolm White. Deep South Dining is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting's Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.